1: Mary I reigned for five years between July 1553 and her death in November 1558. Daughter to Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, Mary was the first Queen Regnant of England, after a disputed succession that saw Lady Jane Grey temporarily in power after the death of Mary's half-brother, Edward VI. Unlike her sister and successor, Elizabeth I, Mary's legacy has continued to focus rather narrowly on the theme of religious persecution and it's certainly important, but what does the evidence of her own lifetime say about the way in which she ruled? Here to discuss Mary, her life and its representation, are Dr. Jessica S. Hower, Associate Professor at Southwestern University, whose research on colonial expansion in the Tudor era includes the book Tudor Empire, the making of early modern Britain and the British Atlantic World, 1485 to 1603, and Dr. Valerie Shute, Who has written on Shakespeare's Queens, Tudor Gift Exchange, Book Dedication, and is currently working on a cultural biography of Anne of Cleves. Together they have co-edited two volumes on Mary I. Mary I in Writing, Letters, Literature and Representation, and its companion, Writing, Mary the First, History, Historiography, and Fiction. Welcome, both of you. I am absolutely delighted to speak to two wonderful women scholars who've been working on a very fascinating woman in history. I wanted to ask you both, what was your particular interest in re-examining Mary's legacy and reputation when you approached editing this book? Jess?
0: Yeah, so this was an exciting project for me in many ways, and I think Valerie and I were the perfect pair to see this through to fruition, not least because we both come at Mary from such different angles. As I'm sure Valerie will talk about, she's done extensive work on the Queen and is one of her foremost scholars, whereas I came to this realizing that I hadn't been able to do enough on Mary thus far and appreciating that there was more of a story to be told. I was struck in the process of writing what ended up to be my first book, my monograph, that for all of the kind of recent revisionism, for all of the efforts to retell Mary's story, to bring her into the spotlight, to appreciate the ways in which she has in many ways been overlooked by her younger sister, or overlooked because of the popularity of her younger sister, there was still more work to be done here. And I saw this coming from two different angles, one in terms of appreciating words and appreciating genre and appreciating the centrality of literature and the means by which she was represented, not just the story that is told through those representations. And similarly, seeing if we could benefit from the fact that there has been this much scholarship on Mary in the last 15 years or so that we have seen this revision to, as we describe it in the volumes, have the luxury of standing on the shoulders of the scholars that have come before us to say, Let's appreciate Mary in her own light and let's focus on her as a significant figure regardless of what came before her and what came after her. And in doing so, not forget about comparisons to Elizabeth first and foremost, but maybe benefit in some certain way from the new research that's been carried out on Elizabeth when it comes to methodology and approach and source work and questions about how she was understood through foreign eyes or from places outside of England or through fiction and then apply that to Mary. So continue the trend of historiography that is already at work, while at the same time benefiting from the shifts that have happened in the last several years, both in Marian and Elizabethan
1: studies. Valerie, how about you? What was your particular interest?
2: I actually approached it the exact opposite of Jess. I approached it from text sources. So my inspiration was Carlos Pajeda's book on Queen Elizabeth in writing. And whenever I was doing a book review of it, I noticed that all of the methodologies in each and every single chapter had been applied to Elizabeth, but not to Mary. And essentially wanted to do the exact same book, but for Mary instead of Elizabeth. That makes a lot
1: of sense. Now, Jess, a lot of the historical writing focuses on Mary Tudor as exactly that, a Tudor. It describes her, as we've just been saying, in comparison to her sister Elizabeth or to her father Henry. But Mary comes from what is possibly a far more interesting legacy of queenship from her mother Catherine of Aragon, her grandmother Isabel of Castile. What does your research say about Mary and female leadership?
0: I can't but hold on to the word that used there, female, and appreciating Mary as stemming from this line of women, but also as a female monarch and the importance of understanding her not just as a queen, but as a female king. And so I think part of what the volume does is appreciates that there is more of a Mary story to be told beyond England, both in terms of how she comes to the throne, but also the lessons and inheritance and heavy weight of history that she brings with her, but then also appreciating that as queen, she continues to look back to those present, both English and Spanish. But she's also part and parcel of a broader European world, a broader Atlantic world, a broader global frame. And so I think I'm very much seizing upon, and we have a bunch of scholars in our volume that do this as well, seizing upon the importance of those legacies and the way in which they shape her queenship, but also realizing that those legacies persist. And she continues to be seen and understood as a woman who is half Spanish herself, is married to a Spaniard, is queen consort of territories that that go well beyond Spain itself into Italy and claims to the Holy Land, and that that influences her reign as well. I highlighted at the fore that I approached this project in many ways from the outside in. I had written a book on Tudor empire that attempted to trace imperialism under the Tudor monarchs from the very start, 1485, all the way through to 1603, but because of the limits of that project, Mary could only get a small slice. Yet I realized that in part because of that heritage, because of the heritage of her and her grandmother, empire was central to her the moment that she came to the throne. And then when she marries one of the premier inheritors of an imperial monarchy in Europe, that can't help but shape her reign in both this interesting paradox of creating an instant competitor and rival, but also an inspiration at the very same time. And I think that was what allowed me to say, what happens when we take empire seriously? What happens if we appreciate that just because she was a Catholic queen and just because she only reigned from 1553 to 1558, there could still be significant develops in here that trace back from the past and that then have repercussions into the future.
1: And I'll definitely want to come back to those questions of empire and her marriage. But if we could start at the beginning of her reign, at least. Valerie, I'd like to talk a little bit about Mary's accession in 1553, and you examine it as one of rightful inheritance, i.e., She is the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Can you tell us a little bit more about what type of records we have about her accession and what they say?
2: Sure. We actually have quite a variety of records from her accession moment. We have things as varied as circular letters, both from her and Lady Jane and her supporters, We have ballads, we have sermons, we have pamphlets, we have printed books, we have various manuscripts. We have lots and lots of sources from her reign, and many of them are in English. And that is important because it shows the importance of vernacular for her reign and involving the entire country and the spread of news and popular literature through things like ballads and songs. And that's how part of her accession was spread throughout the country. Even if many of these things aren't extant, we at least have notices or mentions and references to them, both for and against
1: her. And Edward had attempted to take his sisters out of the line of succession, which is why Lady Jane Grey or Lady Jane Dudley, as she might properly be known if we use her married name, had the opportunity to try and claim the throne after his death. We're not going to get into that. But would this focus on Mary's bright, to rule by royal inheritance have come out of the need to erase Jane's legitimacy. It's a sort of post-facto justification.
2: I think her need to highlight her legitimacy came from a few things. I think one was the Jane issue... Was Jane more legitimate or not than her because of the device? And that's something that I think we'll never exactly know the legality of the device. And that's one of those great historical debates who influenced it and why and not the place here either. But I think that's one of the reasons that Mary addressed her legitimacy. I think another is her gender, but not necessarily because she was a female, but because the first seven claimants to the throne at that moment were female. So there was no potential male heir unless you went all the way down to Poole or Courtney and that seemed a bit of a stretch. So I think that part of her legitimacy also had to do with her half-sister Elizabeth. They were both bastardized at one point, so which sister was more legitimate having the same father? And I think, two like her cousin Margaret Douglas. She was born within wedlock, so was she a more legitimate heir than Mary? So I think that's part of the reason that she really went in on legitimacy and inheritance. Not only was she more legitimate than Jane, but she was more legitimate than
1: her cousins or her half-sister. And do you think these texts that we have, or that we know of, tell us something about public opinion Or were they meant to serve as instruction? That is a fantastic question.
2: And I think that it depends on the text. So for the majority of the popular literature that was produced, none that I have found so far was actually maybe state-sponsored. So it seems like it was a public response to her accession, not the Crown's response to her accession and what they wanted the public to know a lot of the pieces address things like religion and what will happen now that she is a Catholic queen coming back to the throne and how maybe to expect this change to take place. And what I think is most striking about that is most of the literature says, don't worry, it'll be okay. I'm sure that she will approach religion through parliament as her father did. And that is what she did. So I think that The literature doesn't read as, oh, no, what are we going to do now that we have a queen? England will be okay, The monarchy will be okay. We just have to hope that everything is done legally and legitimately. And there was always a lingering hope that she would have a
1: son and this would blow over, (laughs) in a sense. The problem would go away. Yeah, the problem will go away as soon as she has a child. Yes. Soon after her accession, in July 1553, we see Mary's first proclamation. It declares the crown imperial of the realms of England and Ireland with the title of France and all other things appertaining unto the same do most rightfully and lawfully belong to us. So I want to ask you about that question of empire. To what extent was Mary further trying to legitimise her right to rule by reference to empire, by reference to expansion?
0: Without a doubt. I think legitimacy becomes the through line here for so much of Mary's reign. At the beginning, to be sure, because of the fight over the succession, because of questions about her birth the Valerie just spoke about, but that these persist, these continue, and Mary had a full toolbox which she could dip into to find means by which to legitimize herself. History was a big one in particular, tradition, genealogy, ancestry, all of those sorts of things that just fascinate me. But I think empire was a big one too, and it's one that's been overlooked. I think for a couple of different reasons. One, there's this emphasis when we're studying Mary on gender and religion to the exclusion of so much else. That's not to say that gender and religion aren't crucial. They are, but they're also crucial alongside various other themes that connect very closely to matters of gender and religion. And so I think these references to empire are often treated as simply rhetoric without anything behind them. And I think part of the benefit of studying words as we do in studying literature in this volume is appreciating that rhetoric does matter, but it can also have practical implications and applications. And so in that first parliamentary act, there's so much to pick apart in the particular language that's being used. And I think that invocation of empire in particular shows us there are two definitions of empire at work here. One is very closely wedded to the Roman concept of imperium, right? This idea of complete and total sovereignty. It's what's been associated with Henry VIII in the work of a number of scholars from Dale Hook to Walter Ullman, right, this idea of having complete control over church and state. But there's also the territorial definition, right, this idea of actual expansion. And that's the connotation that we frequently think of when we say British Empire. Yet there's this normative formulation, if you will, that's been put forth by David Armitage and others of the British Empire as Protestant, commercial, maritime, and free, something that doesn't exist until the 17th century. And I think this has caused us to miss a lot of these kind of early starts, even if some of them culminate in failure, don't get anywhere, and caused us to miss the fact that maybe even if and maybe even because Mary was a Catholic queen, there could be significant imperial developments in her reign that calling upon her imperial crown and then seeing that imperial crown visually represented in all of the pageantry that met her at the moment of her accession and the moment of her marriage could actually mean something if we start to dig into the policy that she used to approach a place like Ireland or a place like Russia or a place like Africa in the context
1: of Guinea. Absolutely. I mean, even within that proclamation, she's talking of Ireland and France. One is a colony, one she wants to rule. And of course, we know about the loss of Calais in 1558. But, you know, we've got the creation of the Muscovy Company in this period of time. And it's also a period that sees an impressive amount of shipbuilding. The Philip and Mary, we'll talk about the marriage in a second, but name for the royal couple, another Mary Rose, the Leon, the Fleur de Lis, etc. Is what you're saying then that foreign exploration and settlement were quite quickly on the cards I think so. I think it's crucial to remember here that Mary,
0: again, isn't building from nothing. Our conversation started in many ways at the moment of her birth and before her birth, thinking about the inheritance from Catherine of Aragon, thinking about the inheritance from Isabella of Castile. And I think when we appreciate that and also look at the legacy left to her by Henry VII, most famously patronizing the Cabot voyages, when we look at the exploits of Henry VIII and Edward VI, both successful and failed, we look at the rough wooings, right? Claims to Scotland, the very first invocations, the very first use of vocabulary of the Empire of Great Britain is born in the 1540s, right, out of that conflict between Scotland and England. And we have earlier efforts, earlier schemes for Ireland that again date back to Henry Seventh and his use of deputy pointings there. We see further development there under Henry Eighth and Edward VI. So I think it's very much in the cards to begin with for Mary, just as you say. And I think that both those that are interested in practical exploration and adventure seized upon Mary's Spanishness to try and see if they could get further patronage from her, that they could appeal to her on the basis of empire and thus be able to continue the work that they had begun under Edward VI. And then the marriage only furthers this. What's striking to me is how many watershed moments I think we get in the development of the British Empire that have hitherto been connected to Elizabeth I, but that actually date from Mary's reign. And this is where bringing these two literatures in conversation with one another for the first time, right, bringing together this new scholarship on Mary, and bringing together changing notions of what early British Empire looked like, can prove to be really fruitful and can shatter some of the misperceptions that we have about empire in this period.
1: That's really useful. And I will come back to that thread in a second. We have mentioned gender, but we need to talk about it a little bit more, I think. Valerie, a lot of historians discuss the beginning of Mary's reign in terms of, a sort of public uncertainty towards the nature of female rule. I mean, it's something that's made much of by Raphael Hollinshed, for example. Can you tell us more about other contemporary texts, and particularly those that suggest that gender may have been less of an issue than is sometimes assumed?
2: Many of the texts that I did read from the beginning of her accession, especially the popular ones, don't really address her gender at all. Or if they do, it's quite implicit rather than explicit. And I think that is important because we often do now, 500 years on, place such emphasis on her gender as the first queen and why that is so important and then why that became so important for Elizabeth as female rulers. But I think at the time, it was not, as important or as we think it is. So there were many issues at play at her accession besides her gender. So it would have been her legitimacy, her ability, her religion, her education, all of those things tying together and what she would be able to do as queen, not just because she was a female. However, there was, in the way that gender was represented or used, It was as a subtle reminder that Mary was supposed to marry and have children, which we know she chose to do and try to do, but then famously Elizabeth did not, and that became such a critical issue for her own queenship. So I think that at the beginning of her reign, no one questioned her ability to rule because she was a female. They just perhaps questioned how she would balance being a queen and a wife and a mother, which were all roles she was expected to take on at that point.
1: Why do you think gender then has become such a dominant part of the narrative about Mary? Is it precisely because Elizabeth came along and didn't marry and didn't produce children and showed that actually the gender of the monarch matters because it can bring the dynasty to an end? I think that is part of it,
2: is that we read it from hindsight. So we see Mary, who had this five-year brief reign, and then Elizabeth, who was the second female queen female king if you like who did things so different from mary so it's very easy to blame gender mary didn't continue the dynasty mary wasn't able to do certain things because she was female and i think it is very easy to just generalize and stereotype things that she did or did not achieve and simply blame it on her gender and that's an excuse that we can use I think part of it is the comparison with Elizabeth. Neither one of them continued the dynasty and that was their failings as a female. Had they been kings, they could have did what Henry VIII did and just keep on trying until a child lived to adulthood. I think part of it too, and I really like to blame the 19th century for better or worse. (laughs) I love the compendiums of printed sources that came out in the 19th century are of so much use to me. and I couldn't do scholarship without the letters and papers and the different collections of stripe and nickels and everybody. But at the same time, I feel like now I can blame some of Mary's reign always being boiled down to her gender because of how she was presented in those 19th century histories And a lot of it was she was hysterical, she had menstrual trouble, and they took all of the failings and were able to just wrap them up into gender and use that as a way to explain away her reign.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I speak to lots of scholars for this podcast, and my sense is, whilst we all absolutely rely on the scholarship of those Victorian men, we are in some ways just trying to crawl out from underneath the weight of it all. And the weight is patriarchal because the 19th century made the 16th century look good in terms of misogyny. It was much worse. And so we have all of these narratives about how women acted and what we know about them and indeed even what we can know about them because of what they chose to put in those compendium of sources or otherwise that boils down to their interests and their preoccupations.
0: Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway, Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists. And uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence. Slavery to civil rights. The gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
2: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
1: One area that gender has been thought to be particularly important has been to do with Mary's marriage, because one year after she became queen in July 1554, Mary married Philip II of Spain. Jess, you write some interesting stuff about the print dedications that were made to Mary and her husband at this time. Can you tell us a bit about them and what they say about Mary's position and also about the public opinion on her marriage? I think this is
0: inextricably linked to the conversation that we were just having about the 19th century and the way in which we need to climb out from under the weight of the 19th century. I also think we need to especially when it comes to Mary climb out from under the weight of 17th century understandings of Mary, right? The way in which she's used by those throughout the Stuart period arguing on one side of the Catholic Protestant divide or one side of the Tory-Whig divide to denounce or to extol Mary. And so I think in this Same ways that we're still living with Victorian notions, we're also still living with Stuart notions. And the reason that I mention that is that I think that's where the myth of Bloody Mary gets its legs, right? It's where it's first articulated. And as a result, it's a moment in which the marriage between Philip and Mary is deemed deeply problematic and a moment in which England is essentially throwing its lot in with the enemy of all of Europe and becoming associated with the Black Legend, the bloody cruelty of Spain and the Spanish Empire, which then her successors, especially Elizabeth and James, have to emerge from what studying the actual moment of the marriage and everything that follows through print dedications, but also through the various other primary sources that we have from this period, the other elements of the kind of literary genres that we have, is that contemporaries conceived of this marriage quite differently than later audiences did. And so in much the same way as Valerie was emphasizing that gender and religion played less of a role when we actually look at this source material than we might expect. Similarly, and Richard Eden is a wonderful example of this, there are those who look at the marriage, look at Mary in this marriage, and find it as a moment to extol her, to speak to the possibilities of her reign, to describe her as this most serene and most potent monarch, as opposed to labeling her and her reign as bloody and horrific for everyone in the realm. And this is also where gender becomes important again, albeit implicitly. In the marriage to Philip, we see Eden and others taking advantage of the fact that England is now wedding itself, quite literally, to the greatest imperial power in the world when we're simply. Looking looking at geographical expanse, and thus specter of Spain and the Spanish Empire into play and provides an opportunity for Eden to say to all of his readers now is your moment. You now have a king and a queen who are interested in empire, and we can see that because of Spain. Why not seize upon this? Englishmen, why don't you do your duty to your crown, to God, and even to your nation, to your budding nation, and travel overseas? And we even get these fascinating moments, those writing from the perspective of Ireland, who seize on these myths that have very frequently been lost or overlooked of this idea that the Irish come from the Spanish. And so the Spanish are rightful overlord over Ireland. And now, once again, we have a monarch who herself is Spanish, who's married to a Spaniard, and now is the moment to settle Ireland and bring it to civility for once and for all because
1: of that Spanishness, which only becomes crucial because of that marriage. That's a really interesting interpretation, because we often hear about Wyatt's rebellion, the rebellion of people against Mary's marriage. And we understand this to be kind of xenophobic. And so I was wondering about whether the sort of narratives of empire building are a way to soothe anxieties about Mary's marriage to a Spaniard. Is that how you understand it? I think
0: that's absolutely right. I also think that there are two elements to to tease. One, Alexander Sampson, who contributed to volume two in this collection, he's really made the case that when we look at contemporary sources, yes, there is xenophobia. Yes, there is Hispanophobia, more specifically. Yes, there is anti-Catholic sentiment. But there's also a groundswell of support for the marriage at the time among contemporaries. And we need to appreciate that there are those in favor of it, as well as those who have a problem with it. I also think that there is a way in which that xenophobia is beneficial because it allows Mary to fight against those perceptions that she is losing her power because she is a woman getting married or that she has hurt the prospects of England by realigning with the Catholic Church and allows us to see how those things could be transformed into opportunities for Mary to prove herself and to raise the stature of England on the world stage. And I think these interventions into Ireland, into Russia, into Africa are moments in which Spain is occupying this really interesting role of let's placate those who are worried about the Spanish match by demonstrating how much it can help Englishmen and how much it can help the Tudor dynasty and its subjects come to play a more major significant role on the world stage, so much so that someone who is inextricably linked with Elizabethan empire, Richard Hacklett, can go on to say, Yes, Mary proved that the Treaty of Tordesillas is meaningless and the English do have claims abroad. And yes, Mary is the one who launches the Muscovy Company and as a result sets the model for so much of what would follow later. And yes, the English are more successful than even the Spaniards because they're willing to brave these harsh climates and carry out these voyages that are even more impressive than what the Spanish are doing across the Atlantic.
1: So there's a sense in which it's claiming, well, not only equal footing with the might of Spain when it comes to empire, but we even do it better than them. That sounds rather typically English. Valerie, we have an idea of Mary I that is absolutely connected to the fact that 284 people died at the stake in her reign, over 300 in total, including those who died in jail. And yet you discuss various contemporary texts, Of Mary's early reign, which talk about the pursuit of religious tolerance. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Sure. I think that at the beginning of her reign, there was quite a bit of confusion or anticipation as to where religion would go whenever she became queen. And I think this is because for the last 20 years, there had been lots of religious changes from the six articles to the more drastic evangelicalization under Edward. So I think there was lots of concern of what would religion look like? And we know from all of the great studies that have come out on Catholicism in the 16th century that England was not unified in religion to begin with. So there was lots of concern, more so probably from the people within the cities who seemed to be more reformed than the people in the countries which was definitely true. We see at Mary's accession that she was able to go out up to the north and there were more Catholics there who supported her for her queenship. So there was definitely a concern of what would religious change take place? So would she simply step up to be queen and what Edward's reign has done, keep it in place and possibly rule with lots of counsel from men around her. And I know that some of the literature supports, we hope that is what happens. She comes in and men counsel her and tell her what to do. And she just keeps everything in place. But then there was also more than that, more writers were hopeful that if change was to take place, it would take place legally through parliament as how Henry VIII had made changes. And he was explicitly referenced as... Mary will only make changes as her father has done before her. So there was a large anticipation that England would return to Catholicism, but it would be done legally. And in many cases, it would be, we're okay if England goes back to Catholicism, but we don't want a foreign overlord telling us what to do or taking our tithes or anything like that. So perhaps conservative religion is fine. We just want it to be an English version of conservative religion. You know, Mary gets into arguments with Poole and the Pope about why is she not making religious reform fast enough? And she says, I have to do it legally. I can't just come in and say, here, I'm queen, here, you're Catholic. By the way, I need all of that monastery land back because we're going to make that all private again or church lands again. And that I think was probably the greatest concern was not what is mass or service going to look like on Sunday, but are you going to take away the land that I purchased from the crown in the 1540s? It's now my private land. I think that was one of the greatest concerns regarding religious change.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely clear that whilst these monarchs were not constitutional monarchs in any meaningful sense of the word, they rested on the consent of their people and had Mary turned round and said to all the nobility and gentry who've bought up all the monastic lands well i'm just going to take them back then she would have found herself facing an utter rebellion and her reign would have been unsustainable
2: that was really i think one of the main concerns was what will catholicism look like since we haven't been as a nation catholic for 20 years so what does that actually look like what kind of catholic reform will be implemented. And certainly monastic lands was a large piece of that puzzle.
1: And you talk about a hymn that was written by a Protestant to be sung in church called A Godly Psalm of Queen Mary. It's hard to imagine from a modern perspective, knowing what's going to come in the years afterwards in terms of religious persecution, But what should we imagine was going on in the minds of Protestants at the beginning of that reign? Did some think that there would be toleration or even that Mary might advance Edward's reformation?
2: Absolutely. I think that's one of the really striking things looking at the literature from the beginning of her reign is that she was written about so positively by both Catholics and Protestants. So there was not a hatred for Mary that we assume now existed, that if you were Catholic, you liked her. And if you were Protestant, you didn't. Those delineations weren't necessarily made right at the beginning of the reign. And I think even as we move further into the reign towards the marriage there's not necessarily, even still, Catholicism is not what they feared. It was a foreign lord. It was Spain coming in to control England for its own purposes, whether they be religious or empire or something else. So I think it is really interesting to look back at those sources. She was not a Protestant enemy. Now, I think because she had not been necessarily public for lots of years, she was really either out of favor or not making public appearances and things, there was some hope by the Protestants that she would come in and make some kind of middle way or find maybe a more English religious settlement that would please both sides. Or that maybe one of the pamphlets talks about she's just going to leave everything in place like Edward did it. And we're sure of this. And I think that was perhaps wishful thinking that she was going to come in and say, everything that's been done is fantastic. And I will leave everything alone. But I do think there was a hope from the Protestants that she would be tolerant and find some type of way forward where Protestants were accepted and Catholics maybe even were accepted or that they could all work together.
1: I think that's really helpful because this association, this inextricable linking between Englishness and Protestantism and between foreignness and Catholicism is something that comes about because of Elizabeth, because of the 17th century, and it's just not the case during Mary's reign. And it's so salutary to remember that. Now, I'd like to discuss one text with you in particular, one that you both write about, Richard Tavener's Oration of 1553, because it connects together some of the themes we've been talking about. First, Jess, could you tell us about the text itself? Was it printed? Would it have been widely read? Yeah, so I think I use it in a rather different
0: way than Valerie does, For me, it was striking as something that is in appearance in 1553, and this is the moment in which her reign begins, and is so representative of the power of imagery as a legitimizing tool, and the means by which Mary is representing herself from the very start, and others are representing her as an imperial monarch, with all that entails. With these callbacks specifically to the very same iconography, the very same symbolism that Henry the eighth had used to huge effect and that edward VI had also used and so i actually focus on the frontispiece on the coat of arms that's present there on the presence of the dragon and what that highlights about britishness and even the kind of imperial stories that come along with Geoffrey of monmouth and the entirety of his stories from brutus to arthur cadwallader and moving on from there the presence of the french fleur-de-lis and the fact that is often left out of the story because of Mary's reign being so associated with that loss of Calais at the end of her reign, and the presence of that domed imperial crown and how loaded that is. This also speaks to the idea of continuity from Henry VIII and the question of what the religious settlement was going to look like under Mary. Much in the same way as we have this association between Englishness and Protestantism, between foreignness and Catholicism, we also have this association by extension between the British Empire and Protestantism, and that those two things go hand in hand, and that's part of what makes the British Empire different than the empires of its Iberian rivals. But when we realize that imperialism in Britain doesn't have to be Protestant, and that imperial kingship can persist even under a Catholic monarch, we see the ways in which Mary is very careful to still maintain her own sovereignty. And that is what Tavener is steeped in and is representing and I think reminding her of. You wear the domed imperial crown. That suggests a lot. You were crowned with it in your coronation. You were crowned with three crowns total, which different observers interpreted in different ways. But at the very least, they show the entirety, the expanse of your power. And as a result, the way in which you can remain an imperial monarch and perhaps even benefit from realignment with the Pope in the context of empire building overseas, this idea that the Pope can come in and redonate Ireland to the crown and allow Mary to pick up where Henry II in effect left off.
1: And what's so interesting about that is that Geoffrey of Monmouth being invoked at this period of time means that ideas about British Empire are coming about before, famously, John D. coins the term British Empire under Elizabeth, which I never knew before. That's exactly right. Geoffrey of Monmouth, a Galfridian legend
0: in general, in all of its kind of different permutations, the Brute Chronicles, all of those things, all of those texts are immensely popular. They're crucial to Mary's own education. And so these are texts that she was very familiar with when she came to the throne. And it also gives real cause for talking about not necessarily the existence of a British as opposed to an English empire, but certainly conceptions of the empire that Mary was inheriting and trying to build as British. It's interesting, that when you take those things seriously, they give Mary a native kind of homegrown sense of Britishness. Even though John Dee is the one who coins the phrase British Empire, he's not the one to coin the Empire of Great Britain. And that might seem like a minor detail, but he's then borrowing from Humphrey Lude, who is in turn borrowing from Nicholas Bedrugin and a bunch of others who are writing in the context of the 1540s a moment in which the English are trying to claim Scotland and do so by asserting themselves, in part thanks to Galfridian myth, as British monarchs. And then when we look at the plots that Mary actually puts into place, we realize that she is still interested in multiple different British dominions and realms. And there are schemes put forward for colonization in her reign that include Welshmen, which lends a real British flavor to what she's doing in a way that isn't anachronistic, isn't teleological, to look back and say, there is a notion of Britishness here. And and how a Britishness could further the development and actual creation of an empire under the Marian regime.
1: Valerie, the text also notably talks about Protestantism and Catholicism, and it asks for toleration, it asks for this space for private belief. How much discourse was there about Mary's Catholicism as something private, by which I mean something that wouldn't be forced onto her subjects? She actually came out and said this. So her first proclamation
2: as queen was to talk about her religion. And she explicitly says, I'm Catholic. I'm not going to force this on you yet. And I think there's hesitation of there will be no religious change. Let me get situated and then we will talk about it. And the language in that proclamation mirrors almost identical to what is in Taverner's Oration. And I often wonder and I can't prove if Taverner's pamphlet was state-sponsored by Gardner because Taverner was a client of Cromwell's and wrote lots of his Protestant rhetoric in the 1530s and was put under house arrest twice under Stephen Gardner and in fact was under house arrest with Gardner right before Mary's accession. And Taverner was an experienced polemicist or propagandist, if you will. That's what he was used for under Cromwell. And I often wonder if his call for tolerance, since the language is almost identical to the first proclamation, which was most likely written by Gardner, if the two were written together or if Gardner had a hand in both or something, if those two things can be tied together, because they are really the two pieces of literature from August 1553 that call for religious tolerance at that time.
1: I mean, textually, that seems to make sense. And even in terms of the situational terms you've just described, Gardner's like, well, seeing as I've got you here, could you just write something (laughs) that's going to suit our (laughs) agenda? Absolutely. And
2: with him previously writing so many things for Cromwell that were Protestant in nature, that would really give some weight to this pamphlet being tolerant of Mary or accepting of Catholicism, possibly.
1: Well, that's interesting because it puts a different spin on something else I was going to ask you if this is a state-sponsored document, because it asks Mary's subjects to live peacefully together and to put aside ideas about being papist or being heretic. And I was wondering whether this was proof of a kind of public fear of religious persecution. But it takes on a totally different tone if actually this is something that is being disseminated to the public.
2: That exact line, almost word for word, was used in the proclamation. So it was, now that I'm queen, I don't want to hear the terms papist or heretic. We are people of England, not papist or heretic. And she suggested, as does the pamphlet, that the conflict that had happened in the last month regarding her accession was because people were throwing these terms or accusations at one another. And this is how the conflict arose. So I don't think it has anything to do with anticipating persecution, but how can you move forward after just having a succession crisis that seemed to be so
1: rooted in Protestant versus Catholic? Reminds me of electoral promises. I promise I will do this or I promise I won't do this. And then it doesn't come out as promised. There's many more topics to investigate for readers if they pick up copies of these two companion volumes. But I want to just finish by asking you a question and this is for both of you, Mary famously announced her hope to leave some fruit of my body behind me. So based on your research, each of you, what do you think is or should be Mary's greatest legacy? Valerie first, please.
2: I'm not sure. I think there are several things that she did that were important in terms of the monarchy, or even if you want to be very specific for Elizabeth. So things like how to rule in her council as a female over male counselors and establish a power balance. I think that was important for the next queen. I think that was an important lesson that she learned. I think if you're talking about overall, what did she leave? What was maybe the legacy of her reign? I think that we're stuck with Bloody Mary, which is something that I hope goes away. I certainly hope that all of the new work is making that legacy seem more myth than reality, which is something that I'm hoping that these books contribute to. I like to think one of her biggest legacies or legacies of the reign has to do with culture. I think there was culture, there was a flourishing of culture, there was print, and even the Stationers' Company from 1557. That would be something that was very important, that came out of her reign, that lasted for a very long time.
1: Yes, many people do die at the stake, but she's certainly not any more murderous than any other Tudor monarch, or indeed any other monarch at the time. Jess? (laughs) I think I approach this
0: notion of fruit being left behind in a somewhat different way. I think really deeply about the way in which Mary has been studied and examined. I think what I hope one of her big legacies is the worthy and the necessity to study her and to study her in her own right because of how much she left behind, culturally to be sure, but also how much she left behind in terms of understandings of Britishness or of Englishness, of queenship, of kingship, of monarchy, of religion, of gender more generally, that she is quite simply worthy of independent study beyond any precedent that she left for Elizabeth and irregardless of the way in which she was treated by those who lived after her. So I think we can pick and choose particular elements of her reign that were significant and had lasting effects. Of course, within the study of empire, I argue that we need to look to her to understand the colonization of Ireland. We need to look to her to understand the development of trading companies. We need to look to her to understand conceptions of race in the early modern period. But that we need to study her and her reign. And when we do, we come to better understand and conceptualize what it meant to be a woman ruling in the middle of the 16th century, what it meant to exist within the early modern European climate, and what it meant to exist in this world more generally and in this emerging global moment.
1: Well, thank you both very much for a really refreshing conversation. It's talked about all sorts of different aspects of Mary's reign that I think are a little known and I think in the course of this chat itself, we've overturned many of the ideas about how people responded to Mary becoming Queen. It does feel like we're in a new moment where a new picture of Mary the first is emerging. And the fact that you've edited these two excellent volumes is a major part of that reconsideration. And I thank you for sharing it with us all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Really was an honor to be invited. Thank you to my producer Rob Weinberg and researcher Esther Arnott, and thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age –